A special thanks goes out to the folks at Anchor.fm for bringing you this podcast. Hello again, everyone. Today, we have an instant replay episode about two gentlemen, two brilliant gentlemen who are no longer with us. I'm Tom Zania, and this is Tom Reads Your Story. Coming to you almost live, it's time once again for Tom Reads Your Story, the number one spoken word podcast on the web for audiobooks, social media posts, current events, and just plain whatever. So let's start the show. For the next half hour, I'll be your host. I'm voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. Do you need a good professional sound for your podcast? I'm Tom Zania, voice actor and podcast host of Tom Reads Your Story. I can give you the sound you're looking for for your podcast intros and advertisements at the price and turnaround you need. So don't hesitate and send me a message at TomReadYourStory at Yahoo.com. Jeff Corey made a name for himself in the 1940s as a character actor in films like Joan of Arc and The Killers. Everything changed in 1951 when he refused to name names and was promptly blacklisted. He embarked on a career as one of the industry's most revered acting instructors. His memoir, Improvising Out Loud, My Life Teaching Hollywood How to Act, written by Jeff Corey with his daughter Emily Corey, provides a unique and personal perspective on the man whose teaching inspired some of Hollywood's biggest names. The afterlife is not at all what Jack Duffy had expected. A failed suicide attempt launches him into a world that continually tests his ability to forgive and forget. In The Borrowed Souls, written by Paul B. Kohler, Jack Duffy will be compelled to make decision after decision about who gets to live and who will lose their soul. In war-torn Okinawa, there is the story told by a young kamikaze pilot only moments before flying his fighter plane into the side of an American battleship. I Know Why the Waters of the Sea Taste of Salt is written by the poetic master of modern-day horror, Steve Vernon. All three of these great audiobooks are narrated by Tom Zania. Listen to them today by visiting audible.com. And we're back. So this week is, yeah, it's a rerun, or as I like to call it, an instant replay. Um, but it's a good one. And I vowed uh, when I decided to, to do these instant replays that it's got to be a good one. It's got to be one that is enjoyable to listen to and that there's some type of takeaway from it. Uh, and there definitely is from this. This is uh, going to be something that... Anthony Bourdain wrote um, about our relationship with Mexico and also uh, something that my friend Rodney Vaccaro wrote uh, when he attended uh, an evening uh, where Lapine and Sondheim and a couple of cast members from Sunday in the Park with George uh, were on hand to answer questions about 
and talk about uh, the making of Sunday in the Park with George, which I think is really a nice little piece that he wrote. Um, so besides that, you're going to hear a lot of talk from me on one of my older microphones um, regarding moving. <laughs> Not the most exciting thing for a podcast, but nevertheless, that was the talk. Uh, the the background talk uh, for these things, uh, for these two pieces that uh, you'll be hearing. Uh, so anyway, here it is. Um, this is from August 11th of 2021. I hope you enjoy it. And we are back. And I mean, we're really back because as you already know, I was gone for a, a short time, not too long. And I, I you know, I, I only got a, one or two complaints, but then I don't have that many listeners. So <laughs> if, if you want to know what's going on or what went on was that uh, it was that I moved. Uh, I moved the beautiful uh, Tom Read Your Story Studios here in New York to another home. That's it. Nothing terribly complicated, but stressful and time-consuming nonetheless. And I appreciate the fact that you are still with us. Or if, if you're someone who hasn't been with us and you're here for the first time, I am very, very happy that you're here, and I hope that you'll come back again and again. The, the thing of it is, and I, I do have to apologize here, I'm sorry I did make a, an announcement that I was going to be back last week. Um, I really thought I could do it, but I couldn't, and uh, it's still kind of a mess here, uh, as many of you know who have moved in your lifetime uh, I'm still out of certain boxes and things like that. And it's time consuming and it's stressful and it drives me nuts because I don't mark it, everything when I move. A lot of people put a uh, bathroom on a box or they have a box of stuff for the living room. They'll write living room on the box. I don't normally do that. And I didn't do it this time. Um, there are things about the new place that I have to get used to. It's smaller. It's more expensive. But that's New York. Everything in life is smaller and more expensive as you keep going. And that's the way it is. And I, I hope that um, you will help me uh, by uh, being patient during this time of setup and um, getting used to a new space. Uh, as far as it being any better or any different, I can't say that it is. Uh, I would like to say that it is, and maybe I did in some of my announcements. But the thing of it is, we were here, you know, uh, to give you your weekly show uh, every week. And we have to do what we have to do. Sometimes it might be a day late. 
or two days late, or even a week late, <laughs> but it, it's back nonetheless. And for those of you um, who did inquire as to when everything's going to start happening again, it's happening now, and you're here, and we appreciate it. Um, today, today, just a, a few things. One, um, one is... Uh, from a man that we we lost who passed away, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago, I'm guessing, Anthony Bourdain, writing about uh, Mexico, the fact that he has done a lot of work on his TV show from Mexico. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the, um, the title of his story is, you know, what's what's the problem with Mexico or what problem do we have with Mexico? That's the question he's asking. And it's a very good article for those of you who have some opinions about Mexico that aren't very good. This whole idea of building a wall around the people that do our dishes and do our laundry and take care of our kids. What's, what's going on with that? What's that all about? Uh, he talks about the beauty of Mexico and, and the cooking and the food. And it's a wonderful post from Carla, who got it from somewhere else, obviously. And uh, that's a good one. There's another one from uh, my friend Rodney, who is a big supplier to the show because he writes long articles that take up enough time um, so that, um, you know, we can present a good show for you every week. And uh, this is a post from him about uh, Sunday in the Park with George. He went to a, I guess it was a question and answer thing or some type of thing where some of the cast was there. I think it was Bernadette Peters and, and um, Mandy Patinkin. And uh, Sondheim was there and I guess Lapine was there and they talked about the making of Sunday in the Park with George. Why Don't We Love Mexico? By Carla. This is what Anthony Bourdain wrote. Americans love Mexican food. We consume nachos, tacos, burritos, tortas, enchiladas, tamales, and anything resembling Mexican in enormous quantities. We love Mexican beverages, happily knocking back huge amounts of tequila, mezcal, and Mexican beer every year. We love Mexican people. We sure employ a lot of them. Despite our ridiculously hypocritical attitudes towards immigration, we demand that Mexicans cook a large percentage of the food we eat grow the ingredients we need to make that food, clean our houses, mow our lawns, wash our dishes, and look after our children. As any chef will tell you, our entire service economy, the restaurant business as we know it, in most American cities would collapse overnight without Mexican workers. Some, of course, like to claim that Mexicans are stealing American jobs. But in two decades, as a chef and employer, I never had one American kid 
walk in my door and apply for a dishwashing job, a porter's position, or even a job as a prep cook. Mexicans do much of the work in this country that Americans probably simply won't do. We love Mexican drugs. Maybe not you personally, but we, as a nation, certainly consume titanic amounts of them and go to extraordinary lengths and expenses to acquire them. We love Mexican music, Mexican beaches, Mexican architecture, interior design, Mexican films. So why don't we love Mexico? We throw up our hands and shrug at what happens and what is happening just across the border. Maybe we are embarrassed. Mexico, after all, has always been there for us to service our darkest needs and desires, whether it's dress up like fools and get passed out drunk and sunburn on spring break in Cancun, throw pesos at strippers in Tijuana, or get toasted on Mexican drugs. We are seldom on our best behavior in Mexico. They have seen many of us at our worst. They know our darkest desires. In the service of our appetites, we spend billions and billions of dollars each year on Mexican drugs, while at the same time spending billions and billions more trying to prevent those drugs from reaching us. The effect on our society is everywhere to be seen, whether it's kids nodding off and overdosing in small-town Vermont, gang violence in L.A., burned-out neighborhoods in Detroit, it's there to see. What we don't see, haven't really noticed, and don't seem to much care about, is the 80,000 dead in Mexico just in the past few years, mostly innocent victims. 80,000 families who have been touched directly by the so-called war on drugs. Mexico, our brother from another mother. A country with whom, like it or not, we are inexorably deeply involved in a close but often uncomfortable embrace. Look at it. It's beautiful. It has some of the most ravishingly beautiful beaches on earth. Mountains, desert, jungle, beautiful colonial architecture, a tragic, elegant, violent, ludicrous, heroic, lamentable, heartbreaking history. Mexican wine country rivals Tuscany for gorgeousness. Its archaeological sites, the remnants of great empires, unrivaled anywhere, and as much as we think we know and love it, we have barely scratched the surface of what Mexican food really is. It is not melted cheese over tortilla chips. It is not simple or easy. It is not simply bro food at halftime. It is, in fact, old, older even than the great cuisines of Europe, and often deeply complex, refined, subtle, and sophisticated. A true mole sauce, for instance, can take days to make, a balance of freshly, always fresh, ingredients painstakingly prepared by hand. It could be, should be, one of the most exciting cuisines on the planet, if we paid attention. The old-school cooks of Oaxaca make some of the more difficult and nuanced sauces in gastronomy. And some of the new generation, many of whom have trained in the kitchens of America and Europe, have returned home to take Mexican food to new 
and thrilling heights. It's a country I feel particularly attached to and grateful for. In nearly 30 years of cooking professionally, just about every time I walked into a new kitchen, it was a Mexican guy who looked after me, had my back, showed me what was what, and was there. And on the case, when the cooks like me, with backgrounds like mine, ran away to go skiing or surfing or simply flaked, I have been fortunate to track where some of these cooks come from, to go back home with them, to small towns populated mostly by women, where in the evening, families gather at the town's phone kiosk waiting for calls from their husbands, sons, and brothers who have left to work in our kitchens in the cities of the North. I have been fortunate enough to see where that affinity for cooking comes from, to experience moms and grandmothers preparing many delicious things with pride and real love, passing that food made by hand from their hands to mine. In years of making television in Mexico, it's one of the places we, as a crew, are happiest when the day's work is over. We'll gather around a street staff and order soft tacos with fresh, bright, delicious salsas, drink cold Mexican beer, sip smoky mezcals, and listen. I have been fortunate enough to see where that affinity for cooking comes from, to experience moms and grandmothers preparing many delicious things with pride and real love passing that food made by hand from their hands to mine. In years of making television in Mexico, it's one of the places we, as a crew, are happiest when the day's work is over. We'll gather around a street stall and order soft tacos with fresh, bright, delicious salsas, drink cold Mexican beer, sip smoky mezcals, and listen with moist eyes to sentimental songs from street musicians. We will look around and remark, for the hundredth time, what an extraordinary place this is. The received wisdom is that Mexico will never change, that is hopelessly corrupt from top to bottom, that it is useless to resist, to care, to hope for a happier future. But there are heroes out there who refuse to go along. On this episode of Parts Unknown, we meet a few of them, people who are standing up against overwhelming odds demanding accountability, demanding change, at great, even horrifying, personal cost. Creating Sunday by Rodney The wonderful Pope family bought me a ticket to a virtual town hall discussion with Sondheim and Lapine, talking about creating Sunday in the Park with George. They were joined by Mandy Patinkin and Bernadette Peters. The whole event was so fascinating. Two things. One, the painting. You know, it never sold in Surratt's lifetime. After his early death, it went to his mother and then to his brother. It finally sold in 1900 to a private collector for 800 francs. And then, sold again in 1924 to Frederick Clay and Helen Birch Bartlett, who bought it as a gift for the museum in Chicago. Up to this point, 
it had only been exhibited a handful of times. Since then, it has only left Chicago once, when he was loaned to MoMA in 1958, where it survived a fire that killed a workman and destroyed an 18-and-a-half-foot Monet water lilies. Le Grand Jatte was one of many priceless works that were rescued by museum workers who rushed into flame and smoke to carry the works to safety. One of the things that shunned through in the discussion between Sondheim, Lapine, Peters, and Patinkin was how the creation of the show was not just a job for any of them. These were dedicated artists laboring over a great work. The hard weeks they all spent in workshop were done for free. This was Lapine's first Broadway show. He was both the author of the book and director. Sondheim had just come off being savaged unjustifiably, formerly, and was seriously considering retiring. This was right at the beginning of what has now become the norm of shows trying out in New York, which is a damaging process. Although critics are supposed to reserve their judgment until the show opens, they are often influenced by reports of trouble during the development period. That period was very difficult for this show. The second act kept evolving and really wasn't the final genius we have now until opening night. When I started the New Plays Festival at Actors Theatre, I envisioned it as a week on and a week off which would give writers the priceless gift of working a play with an audience. We did it that way for the first two years, with American Still Life. We never performed the same play twice, and this process was invaluable in developing Home of the Brave, which became the film Run the Wild Fields. I wish more New Plays Festival would acknowledge that the greatest gift you can give a writer is not a performance which is close to meaningless, but a working run, which is priceless. The purpose of such festivals is to develop new writers, and what a writer must learn is that the work is never finished. It just reaches a point where you stop. The greatest gift an author can have in this process is a cast and crew willing to work on an ever-changing turn of the moment. To drop moments they love and create new ones on demand. Sondheim and Lapine had that with Sunday, and the single most amazing moment is this. Finishing the Hat was added to the show the night before the critics' preview, when Patinkin went on that night in a Broadway house in front of an audience. He had only heard the song once, and only sung it through once, just before Curtain. Patinkin said one of his most treasured possessions is the sketchbook from that scene. And in it, he said, are tucked the piece of onion skin paper with the lyrics to finishing the hat that were placed there that night. He said something I understood. He said he never had to look at them because the song was so perfect. I struggle with memorization. It's one of the reasons I stopped performing. But with this, as with most Sondheim, it was never an issue, because the work is perfect. It just simply can't be sung other than written, if you are present. He said something else I loved. He said, after that night, 
It was the song that haunted him the most, because in the entire run and in the years since, he was never able to duplicate that first moment he sang it in front of an audience. One more thing. This moment moves me even now, remembering it. Sondheim said that early in their meetings, before they had decided to work together on this show, Lapine showed him a postcard reprint of La Grande Jatte, and Sondheim stared at it and said, It looks like a stage set. And then he said that the characters in the painting looked like actors in a show. And Lapine said, There is one missing, the painter. They looked at each other, and at that precise moment, they knew they had a show. Having done this show twice, I can say, and I think everyone who is involved, cast, crew, and staff, feels the same. You always, in every moment of rehearsal and performance, you always have the sense that Surratt was there with you. You feel him. And you also feel the two artists, Sondheim and Lapine who are also there, none of them judging you, all supporting you, loving you. The line I most love in this show is in this song, where he says, Look, I made a hat. It seems so trivial when he says it, but then, from his essence, he says, Where there never was a hat. That is everything that gives us meaning. Finishing the hat. Sunday in the Park with George. An excellent piece from my friend Rodney Vaccaro, Sunday in the Park. So, Tom Reed, your story is back up. This is the official <laughs> announcement. I'm here so you can be here as well. And I hope that you listen every week. And, and well, yeah, that's easy to say. But listen, uh, nothing has changed that much. At least nothing that you are going to readily notice. But I hope that you do uh, obviously come back every week and, and listen to what, uh, what things I like to put up there. Thanks for your patience during my time off. And that brings us to the end of yet another episode of Tom Reads Your Story. If you enjoyed your visit today, please tell your friends because we've always, we are always looking for new ones. Be sure to email me at tomreadsyourstory at yahoo.com if you have questions or comments about the show. That's never happened. As always, thanks to anchor.fm for the opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. Until next time, and that should be next week, Stay safe, everyone. Bye now. This is Tom Zania. For more information on my availability for your e-learning, commercial, or audiobook project, visit my website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. We hope you visit us again real soon for another episode of Tom Reads Your Story.